you're you're waiting for Mr. Absolute absolutely perfect. And you're drawn to the kind of really handsome, glamorous guys who are high in dark triad traits, you know, psychopathy, Machiavellianism. Um, what's the first one? Third one, narcissism. Um, because often those guys are really charming and and these are very likely to be the ones who are having multiple women on the go and are going to ghost you and stuff, you know. I think that sometimes women need to be much wiser about the men that they are attracted to. And there's this, it's something you see so often in romantic fiction intended for women. So it's basically porn for women, right? Is, is um, the bad boy who changes for you. Yeah, like he's horrible to every he's horrible to all the women and he's distant and whatever, but you are the special one and you are the one who's going to like turn him around. And I think so many women find that really seductive as a narrative and it is such a destructive narrative because it's basically never happens. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Hafiz, and welcome back. Welcome back, guys. I had to tap in with you guys really, really quickly because there was an amazing woman who I was introduced to her work and what she's trying to do in today's society, and I had to bring her on the podcast. In today's world where there's so many people, so many bad actors who are really not trying to make a change of all the different issues going on in today's society, to meet this upcoming individual and to be able to talk to her about her amazing book, I am beyond blessed and honored. And I want everybody at the end of this episode in this conversation to buy her book, support her work, because she needs all the inspiration. She needs all the support possible to continue to get her message out to the general public. Without further ado, welcome to the show, the one and only Louise Perry. Hi, it's so good to be here. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine, yeah. I'm doing good. <laughs> awesome, awesome, awesome. So uh, for the people who don't know who you are and what you do, can you share a b brief elevator pitch about who you are, what you do, and all that good stuff? Uh, so I'm a journalist. I'm based in London. And I'm an author. My first book is called The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century. And it was released um, nine months ago now in the UK and a little bit later in the US. And it's just completely changed my life <laughs> writing this book because I, it's just struck such a chord with people. It's been completely crazy. Yeah, yeah. No, I can I can hear it in your voice. You've been doing interviews nonstop. You've been doing, <laughs> doing press. I was like, man, they, they've been putting her through the... To, to work with this book <laughs> i i mean i tell you i turned down a lot of interviews as well because uh, like the response has been amazing amazing yeah. awesome 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 so before we before we jump into the book i i want to know a little bit about louise because there was there, there was a part in the book that i'll, I'll reference soon a little bit but i want to know i want to go back in time um i want to i want to know who were you in high school and, and and what was your life like during that period of time? In high school. So I, uh, I grew up in, I spent basically my whole my life in London. Um, my parents were actually from Australia, but they moved here a bit before I was born. And I had honestly an extremely boring upbringing, like very sort of um, <clears throat> stable kind of middle class home. My parents have been married forever for like 35 years or something now. 
Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, people sometimes assume from reading this book that I must have been like particularly scarred by, um, our sexual culture, but not really. I think I just had a completely normal experience and sometimes a completely normal experience is actually more sort of instructive in a way than having really extreme experiences at either end. Um, and, and, you know, I just, my, I look around at, at my friends and, you know, we all have basically the same um, negative experiences of the sexual culture. Um, and I mean, the, the big sort of experience for me, which really I suppose set me on the path to writing this book, even though I didn't know that at the time, was I worked at a rape crisis centre after I left university. Um, and my job was, um, I had a few different jobs, one of which was supporting teenage girls who'd been um, sexually assaulted and also going into schools and talking to young people and teaching consent workshops and stuff like that and the main thing I came away from thinking from having done that job and I subsequently became a journalist is that um so much of what people think about sexual violence is completely wrong <laughs> and so much of what people think about men and women is completely wrong and basically the premise on which I base this book is um that men and women are really different in some really important ways. And actually when we go around pretending that men and women are the same, not just physically, but also psychologically completely, I think it actually hurts everyone and it hurts young women in particular. So um, what made you decide to work at the rape crisis centers following university? Well, I was volunteering there when I was a student. I've always done like different types of, um, uh, like emotional support volunteering of different kinds, like suicide lines and things like that. And um, so working on the Red Crisis Helpline was sort of a natural a natural fit for me there. And then the job came up. It wasn't like it was, you know, like uh, planned years in advance or anything. It was, it was kind of just a job came up. Um, and it was a really good job to do um, at that point in my life. And I learned a lot <laughs> about, yeah. about reality. <laughs> no, no, no. So... Yeah, did you grow up in a in a in a Christian like religious household? No, so I mean, I guess in the sense that I sort of culturally Christian. I think everyone who grew, who's who lives in Britain or America like can't help but sort of be infused with Christian ideas because it's everywhere, um, but not a church going house. No. Um, okay. Interesting, because the reason I had asked that is because so. One of the things that it seemed to me, you made you made two points, and I want to get to the the, the, the first point a little bit in in a, in a minute. But you made a point where it seems like you were drawn towards acts of compassion and service. You know, like you communicated, you you were drawn towards these these fields. I was wondering what 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 was that? Just your temperamental disposition? Was it your your parents instilling that in you? What what gave you? the heart for people who were hurting um, and just, and caused you to want to pursue volunteer work and service in that field? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 maybe it is that sort of, maybe it's the culturally Christian thing. Um, I've, I have always felt particularly cause I've had a really very happy and blessed life. And so I think that, um, if you've got the if you've got the time and the energy and the resources, then you should do that sort of thing and do the sort of thing that's best suited to your skills as well. Um, and I guess it was always clear to me from quite early on that um, I could talk to people in ways that they found 
helpful, you know, that, that talking to people was one of my, a skill that I could use in good ways. And um, I actually, um, before I, um, my first, I started a medical degree before I, I dropped out. I only did it for a year and I realised that actually it was completely, <laughs> I worked so hard <laughs> to get into medical school and then I got there and I was like, no, this is terrible. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't last. But I had wanted to be a psychiatrist. That was the mm. specialty that I was most interested in. Um, I've since learned that a lot of medical school dropouts are people who want to be psychiatrists because the psychiatrist is like the least medicine-y <laughs> of all of the disciplines. <laughs> so if you want to be a psychiatrist, it might mean that actually you don't want to be a doctor. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, and uh, yeah, so I guess that's just always been an, an interest of mine, but not like explicitly motivated by faith. My mum has actually become a Quaker in adulthood. Interesting. Um, yeah, but she wasn't when I was okay. when I was growing up. No, that's interesting. Mm. Nah, so so you, you made a point in the beginning, and I love the point that you brought up. And I'm gonna try not to ramble too much about this point, but you made a point where you said a lot of times people think that your introduction to the book, the, uh, you know, when you wrote about for women who had to learn this the hard way, right? A lot of people assume that you were one of those people who were, lack of better words, were running the streets as well, you know, and, and had to learn these lessons the hard way. But one of the things you stated was by being in a stable, healthy environment, it actually gave you the best perspective to be able to go and look out and into the world and say, wow, this is absolutely insane, absolutely crazy. And, and, and to see the disconnect between what was healthy that you experienced in your life and what was unhealthy being communicated in the world. And I, and I find that to be my experience, you know, um, doing this show and, 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 helping men and trying to transform society. A lot of people assume like, you know, you probably grew up in a very difficult household and you probably grew up, you know, without a father in your life. And, 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 it, and it was this void, which made you build your platform to be able to, to help men and, and do your work. And I said, no, I actually quite the opposite. I, I, I share it. I was, I was born in Eden and I was raised in Zion. Like I, I had the two amazing parents. My dad it, in my opinion, is in the Hall of Fame for fathers. And so I had so much love. My dad told me I love you every single day. I was handsome every day. I was intelligent every single day. I was bombarded by love and support. So to me, like when I started going out into the world and I started seeing people who had no dads, who've never heard a word of encouragement, who was simply being raised by the culture and society and unhealthy messages, that's where my compassion kicked in. So it's, it, to me, it sounds um, in a sense similar to what you have experienced, where it was like it was out of being raised in, in, in lack of better words, Eden, that led you to look out into the, the vast wasteland, which was the world with compassion and wanting to provide hope and solace to people who were suffering. Yeah, I'd not thought about that before, but that is, yeah, it's an interesting point. I think actually if I had had the sort of, I mean, I I did learn it in a hard way in a sense, but um, it didn't take very long. It was quite brief. And like, I've been with my husband since I was like 21. You know, I've had, um, I've actually had a really stable, loving life. You know, I've, I've, been, I've been really lucky. And I think that probably does mean that I was maybe quicker to, it's very common for women to tread this path of thinking initially that the sort of um, the hedonistic casual sex thing 
is is empowering and is good and then they actually spend some time in that life and come out of it the other side and say actually this has really hurt me um my friend Bridget Fettersy she wrote this great essay um a few months ago inspired inspired by me reading my book called I regret being a slut where she was mm. is a really amazing essay it went completely viral everyone should go read it where she talks about how her own experiences you know she she it took a really long time until she was in her late 30s early 40s to realize that actually this was hurting her whereas I realized that in my early 20s and that's probably mm. because I had I had like every advantage you know I was I was in I was in the best possible position to realize that and I think it's probably lucky that I did I mean I started just in terms of writing this book even aside from my, my personal stuff um I started writing this book when I was 28 and I'm now 31 and um it's kind of the perfect age to be <laughs> to yeah, write yeah, this definitely. book because i because i'm still young enough that yes. um uh the young women who are a bit younger than me and young men as well don't yep. think that i'm like completely disconnected from their lives 100% but i yeah but also i've I came to the realization quickly enough to permit me to write it when I was still young. So it was kind of the sweet spot, yeah. I think. No, it's, it's actually the ideal. And I, and I want to walk you through, cause you've said so much. I don't think you've even understood what you said. We even got into the book, but we're, we're in the, we're in the, we're in the, uh, the prelude right now. But, yeah. um, but so you, you said you did learn the hard way, but you learned the lesson quite easily if you're comfortable sharing what what was that experience like was it was it a uh exploratory phase in college where you quickly learned that this this narrative wasn't for you what was that what was that experience like i don't want to get into details partly i mean i actually i mean this is a whole other point actually i think that um i think people should talk a lot less about their sex lives in public 100 <laughs> percent. i think that because uh, particularly young female journalists like there is so much um there's so much incentive within journalism and and media generally to be confessional it's this it's this uh, enormous market and do you remember when there was that phase in particular with like women's mags like Jezebel and and the era of BuzzFeed and stuff yeah we'd have yeah. these like crazy confessions and journalists would get paid like $50 or something to spill their darkest secrets and um, off, and often like really humiliate themselves. And it's also a whole thing with like sex columns um, that women will write uh, columns about their like crazy sex lives. And I, I read them for research purposes because they're often very revealing and interesting about the culture. And I think if you ever stop having like self-destructive sexual experiences, you're going to lose your job. Like your job depends on living a life. Mm. It's actually really bad for you. And it also kind of selects for people that kind of writing who don't have 100%. good boundaries. Because if you're willing to talk about your partners without any filter and you're willing to talk about your own like deepest, darkest secrets without any filter, that probably means that you've got some psychological dysfunction going on. So I've always kind of resisted talking about my own sex life at all. Um, and I want partly to clarify, for political reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I want to clarify. You don't have to talk about anything you're not comfortable with. And for me, the, me asking that question has nothing to do with trying to get into the intimate details about your life. The sheer reason I was only asking is because I've heard many stories from women who are very similar to you be, 
and, and the story is that because they come from a stable, healthy household, when they do eventually, you know, you know, become go through that stage where they're exploring themselves, they immediately experience, you know, the raging Gaston like narcissistical males in society. And then they're immediately appalled by it. They're immediately appalled by what's going on because they have a healthy foundation. So it's easier for them to go back to what's healthy and what's normal for them. But on the flip side, the girl who comes from chaos, you know, unhealthy background, no father figure, no guidance, goes into the world and it and isn't and isn't gross with the filth. Then it's harder for her to go back to something stable because she knows nothing from her past of what is stable. So I was just trying to see if that was similar to your story. But please, if you don't feel comfortable, you don't no, have to no, share. No, I'm not. I, I don't. I don't want to. I'm not smacking you down at all. It's more, <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I think that is basically my experience, the former experience of having fairly quickly thought, hang on, this is not, this, this whole culture is not right um, from the get go. And, you know, part of that might be um, like my temperament, you know, I recognize that maybe I'm just less interested in the kind of, um, is sowing your wild oats an American expression? Do you guys know what that means? I, it may be that I'm, <laughs> maybe that I'm just less interested in the kind of like um, wild hedonistic lifestyle than than other women are. But I don't know because I think that this is this is the this is the response that I get from quite a lot of quite a lot of critics. They'll say, you know, you say that women often actually find hookup culture really upsetting. You say that a lot of women don't really want to participate in hookup culture and they kind of do it because of the social pressure, all of this stuff. But how do you know that these women aren't just being sort of slut shamed or they're not fully able to express themselves sexually because of their own hang ups that are born from a patriarchal society, yada, yada. Like that's the, that's the counter argument. I say, look, there probably are a few women who are like that. I think that there are some women who very, very sincerely like want to have sex like men really do think that it's um, empowering and fun to have loads of different partners and to jump into bed and be really adventurous and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure, I'm convinced that those women do exist. I just think that they're unusual. And actually, if, you know, if you're one of these women who's, you know, maybe you're in your early 20s and you're kind of, you're doing the hookup thing, you're throwing yourself into that into that life because everyone else is doing it, I sort of think, is it more likely that you're one of those really rare women who sincerely want to do this? Or is it more likely that actually you're doing it because it's normal and because this has been presented to you as like the path of least resistance and it's easier to kind of tell yourself a story where you're actually the empowered protagonist, right? Yeah. Than to tell yourself a story where actually you're kind of being duped a little bit, you know? No one likes to feel that way. It's not very... It's not a very like flattering <laughs> perspective on your own decision making, but that doesn't mean it isn't true. And it's very, very common for people to to do that when they're younger and then to later think, oh, my God, actually. This wasn't right for me. Yeah, no, this is this is so good. So um, you, you mentioned something that I want to talk about. And it's really interesting. And there's a book. I just totally blanked on the book's name. So forgive me for not for not knowing the exact book. So you made a point where you said, and, I'm, and, I'm, and obviously this is not your words. You're just quoting what people say, that some women can have sex like men. And um, 
and I'm trying to get there's so much I want to talk to you about. So I'm trying to gather my thoughts and, and be straight line as forward. But so I, I want to before I want to talk about that. But but before we get there, we have to go backwards a little bit. And so your book is about the case against the sexual revolution. And I, I want to start there because because 1950s, 1960s America changed everything. Um, in my opinion, it changed the whole entire world. Four, four huge things that happened during that period of time. Um, obviously, birth control, which we will talk about. Um, obviously, Kinsey reports we'll talk about, um, you know, and his findings. Two, the two latter things um, is sex in a single girl and the feminine mystique. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to talk about those, those books with you a little bit because um, I, I haven't really heard you share much about this, and I'm curious to your thoughts on them. But before we do, um, do you define yourself as a feminist? Yeah, <clears throat> I do. Um, I think that it's, I, I think the best definition of feminism is a kind of loose one that's basically like someone who thinks that women are disadvantaged in important ways and wants to rectify that. Uh, it's just that we're all completely in disagreement about how exactly women are disadvantaged and what would be the best way, like best solution yeah. to that. So it's obviously a very, um, it's a very divided um, of course. movement, of course. but I think it sort of has to be because it's just such a, you know, we're talking about um, half the human race and how they relate to the other half. So it is quite a big question. Cool. So have you, have you read Sex and the Single Girl and the Feminine Mystique for your, for your book? I've read The Feminine Mystique. Remind me who Sex and the Single Girl. I've, I've heard of it, but I don't know if I've read that one. Oh, man. So I'm, I'm going to get her name for you because I don't want to forget it. I would, I would highly advise you when you get the opportunity to read Sex and the Single Girl. Um, Sex and the Single Girl, I keep on saying this book, was written by Julia. Um, sorry, wrong author. Um, Helen Gurley Brown. Um, is it book, is it in New York? Was it written in New York? Yeah, and it's about her like living in New York, and I think I, yeah, I, so, I probably so, have read it years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it, so Sex and Sex in the City is based upon her book. A lot of a lot of you know books about sexual liberation is based upon her book. It was written, I believe, okay, yeah. 62, 63. It came out before the Feminine Mystique, and and I even Betty Betty Friedman has quoted like that book really was inspirational for me. Um, and so the Sex and the Single Girl. Um, the book really changed because it was the first conversation about single sexuality as a woman that was really that hit the mainstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what's funny was when people were criticizing her book, um, one of the things she made a point and she said, people keep on saying I'm a bad role model, but I never chose to be a role model. I just chose to share my stories and women gravitated towards me. Maybe it's your guys' fault because you guys did not provide anybody else for women to look up to in regards to their sexuality. So it was it was really interesting. But if you haven't read that book, I don't want to spend too much time there. I, I want to spend time where you know with the feminine mystique. So I'm very curious about your thoughts on the feminine mystique because I want to share some of mine, but I really but I feel like this will really help create a better landscape as we continue to progress forward in the conversation. So I think that um, Fridan is right to recognise that um, when women are stuck at home and are really isolated in a very kind of atomised society, 
it makes them miserable and crazy. You know, that's clearly true. And I think that one of the um, important things to recognise about the 1950s, particularly in America, but also elsewhere in the rich world, is it's a really weird time, right? It's mm -hmm. it's it's post-Second World War. There's the huge economic boom, but there's also an awful lot of like internal migration and people moving away from their families and their settled communities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the normal way in basically every society, every, t every time and place for people to construct families is in part of settled extended networks. 100%. Um, where, you know, you're spending time this idea of like the, the stay at home mum being at home all day with her 2.3 children while her husband goes out to the city to work is really historically unusual. It's much more common for people to work at home in, in some fashion, you know, whether that be on the farm or in the like workshop or whatever. And it's much more common for people also to have, you know, sisters, cousins, everyone kind of in and out having this kind of like embeddedness within which I'm sure is often really annoying you know <laughs> I don't want to like romanticize it because I'm sure it's often a complete pain when your mother-in-law is like constantly walking into your kitchen and so on but mm -hmm. this loneliness that Fridan describes is not like essential to having children it's a it's a it's a like historically very specific thing and it's something that women obviously are still experiencing and, and, and still being made lonely and miserable from um mm. I think the other thing that I think about a lot with Fridan's observation that, you know, the, um, I think the malady that has no name is the expression she uses or something like that to describe when women are, um, are basically become incredibly neurotic and, and have like physical symptoms from their neuroticism as a result of their social condition. Um, and she's particularly talking, I mean, one of the, the keys, um, criticisms of Fridan is that she's talking basically about rich white women um yes. who obviously have a like unique experience um but you know one of the things I think about with talking about the malady that has no name is um rich white women still have incredibly high levels of mental illness <laughs> like if you look at rate of rates of SSRI use among um particularly like um older liberal white women you know, there's like a big political skew. Liberals take a lot more antidepressants than conservatives do for whatever reason. Um, you know, it's really high and, and that extends to all other kinds of like depression, anxiety related conditions, which makes me think, and, and we've, you know, we've never had a higher proportion of women participating in the labor market. So it makes me think, is it really the case that women become depressed and anxious, like specifically from not doing paid work outside the home? Mm -hmm. Or is it maybe that there's other stuff going on here? And maybe it's to do with things like loneliness, to do with relationship breakdown, you know, loss of faith. There's so many other factors that we could be using to explain people's mental distress. I just, I don't think that sort of the jury's in on whether or not women going out to work like in that kind of modern way yeah really and does really so has good. any effect on on women's happiness a hundred percent and i and i called her betty betty friedman i'm sorry betty friedman <laughs> <laughs> i called her the wrong name no i i loved i'm sorry you were you were preaching and i was just i was trying not to get too excited as you were talking <laughs> everything that you were saying is what i wanted to talk to you about because i think it's really important to talk about um, I highly advise people, obviously, you got to you got to, you know, buy the case against the sexual revolution first. But afterwards, <laughs> after you buy your book, please read the feminine mystique It's really important. Here's why. When people talk about the traditional family, 
Um, there's nothing traditional about the traditional family. That was a 1950s, 1960s suburban invention, as you pointed out. The idea of mom, dad, Billy, Sarah, you know, the dog spot in a white picket fence living in isolation, that was not normal in humanity. Humanity has been, you know, most of the times, you know, before the great migrations, we were, you know, we were agrarian societies in the most of America, the most around the world. You know, we were living in tribes and villages and bands, you know, before people left to the suburbs, they were living in the cities, right? So, so we, we, we always existed in these extended family households, right? And as you pointed out, like, and also women always were working, you know, if, if, if you lived on a farm, no one said, oh, you're a female, you're, you just sit back and do nothing. Like, no, 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 no. Like in hunter gatherer societies, oh, you're a female, you sit back and do nothing. No, women were always working. Um, and so like you pointed out, but then post World War II, things changed and the culture changed. And Betty Friedan and her fellow classmates who went to college, and I would argue they were more on the, you know, uh, what does Jordan Peterson call it? More on the conscientious, you know, spectrum. Mm -hmm. Obviously, were disconnected because what they were doing was they were, in essence, living in a cage in, uh, under their presupposition, right? They they were living in isolation, and but the 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 mistake that they made in my opinion, it's easy to critique them, is when they said women are fulfilled most at an office space doing, as she called it, meaningful work, right? And, and, and no, you're fulfilled doing what, not a job being a CEO, but you're fulfilled by living, having a fulfilling life. And for everyone, that's different, right? And so to me, I, the, the, the major sin, I think that, she made, and this is one of the major sins I think a lot of the, the, the feminist writers make during that period of time, especially in, the, in the, you know, the growing of second wave feminism, is that they look at the hyper-masculine man as the ideal standard, right? So you look at the guy in corporate America who's working 90 hours a week and say, oh, he's, the, that, he's doing meaningful work. Women should be doing what he's doing. Look, look at him, the guy who's who's who has all this money. He's living the the the, the fulfilled free life, and they and they and they and they look at that person, and and as we see it now, like that's not the fulfilled life. You know, being disconnected from your family, friends, working a hundred plus hours, overworking yourself—that's not the fulfilled, meaningful life. But they prescribe that. As like the solution to, as you said, all the, you know, the, 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 the issues that were going on with the women today. And that was a false um, prescription. So I say all that because one of the mistakes I constantly see is they look at a certain kind of man who, from my, all my experience, is not happy as the ideal man. And then they want to emulate his behavior, i.e. sex right? I.e. that word, have sex like a man. Well, what kind of man? Mm -hmm. Oh, the, the, the Hugh Hefner playboy type, the Gaston-like figure who's sleeping around with hundreds of women with, with no regard. You think he's happy? You think, that, you think that guy is the ideal standard? And so I think one of the biggest challenges that I saw, are, are, and I love what you talked about in your book, is that you make 
it's not even about liberation. We can talk about that a little bit later, but you make a certain kind of man, which most men are not like, by the way. Mm -hmm. You make a certain kind of man this sexual standard, and you fit women who are even more different than the average man into that box, and there's nothing but carnage left in his wake. Yeah. I think part of what's going on is that... um kind of by definition the women who have agitated for this and the women who end up at, at in senior roles you know whether as ceo or politicians or head of media organizations or whatever are tend to be unusual women you know they tend to be maybe kind of more masculine in their temperament it might be the way that we might describe it like more competitive and ambitious and less interested in um family life and 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 often highly intelligent and capable and so on you know but they're just kind of weird <laughs> which is not to say that that's a bad thing you know that people with those skills achieve extraordinary things but they're often not very good at um understanding what most people want um because they're not representative so I think a big mm. part of what's driven this kind of image of 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 having sex like a man living like a man the stuff we see on tv it's partly because it's the women who are most likely to desire that who end up in positions of influence. Um, the phrase have sex like a man I took from the first episode of Sex in the City, which yes. is, um, you know, it's like the Bible of this lifestyle. Right. And um, such an influential show. My my um, my friend Catherine D, um, who I interviewed on my podcast the, um, last week, actually, she um, uh her take on Sex and City, I think, is really interesting. She thinks that actually, you know, it was written by gay men, like the screenwriters are actually gay interesting. men. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. So they don't, so, you know, kind of, in some ways, what you see represented, particularly with some of the characters, is actually kind of closer to the gay male lifestyle than the straight female lifestyle, just by the nature of the writing. And also, um, it's all, it's kind of a joke, right? Like Sex and City is funny, right? And And actually, it's, it's, particularly in the early series, it's kind of clear that it's sort of supposed to be satirical. It's sort of supposed to be for um, the women and the gay men who are living in New York and are living this very kind of like glamorous but very materialist lifestyle and so on. And it, it's kind of Catherine's theory, and I think she's right, is it's intended as an in, a bit of an in-joke for people who are also from that world. That it's like, you know, this is what we're like and... Um, and it's you know it's frivolous. We hurt ourselves, aren't we? Aren't we funny? Kind of thing is supposed to, is supposed to be the joke, except it became so extraordinarily popular that it was read by and watched by people who had who were completely outside of that world and didn't, and didn't get the joke, <laughs> right? And saw it as being like obviously aspirational. Um, you've probably never seen it, but there's this British comedy show called called Peep Show, um, which is like massive cult hit. And that it's set in this like really dreary suburb of London. And uh, a lot of the drama takes place within like a really grim office. It's a bit like the office, that kind of environment. And there's a character in it who is um, like a bit dowdy, uh, you know, like nice, but not, not very glamorous, you know, has this actually fairly like um, fairly depressing life. And one of the jokes in the show is that Sex and the City is her favourite show. And she sees it as like super aspirational, and and she ends up actually over the course of the show um, making some really bad decisions in relation to men, because yeah. yeah, I think it just 
it's not supposed to be it wasn't supposed to be a template and it certainly yeah. shouldn't be used as one no that's 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 powerful I, I i didn't know that was written by gay men um i definitely want to look into that because um i think it's important that men and women hear each other's stories which is why i just love learning from you um it's so important that we have that in today's society because like i said um I know, uh, like, there's this, those, those community of women, um, um, there's this book by Richard Putnam from Harvard called Bowling Alone. I'm not sure mm -hmm. if you read it, read it or not, you read Bowling Alone. And he talks about what happens. He says, when, there, when there's a vacuum of, of, of responsible citizens in the public sector, then the only people left to speak in the public sector are the irresponsible ones, right? So... Because there's nobody sharing, you know, good ideas, then the people with the bad ideas are the only ones with the platforms to be able to spread their nonsense. And so, like I said, so there's so many messages, like you said, where, where these certain kind of women who, who, who let's, let's, let's share it. Most men are not even like those kind of men, you know, the, like most men are not able to work Seven, 80, 90, 100 hours, most men are not CEOs. You know, most men are very, are, are, are men who want family and children and who want to live a decent life. They're, they're, they're not these fictional characters that, that these women are even as, aspiring to be. And there was a book, very popular book. I'm not sure if you read it or not. It's called The Game by Neil Strauss. And what happened was familiar in the early- I've not actually read it. Familiar yeah. with it. So in the early 2000s, there was this huge pickup culture. You know, there was a community of men who couldn't get any women and, you know, issues were going on. So men started getting into pickup. And there was a very famous pickup artist called Mystery who was an expert on, you know, picking up women and, 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 and getting men, helping men get laid, as they say it. And the book starts so masterfully because this guy who's this masterful expert on picking up women um, – who can get any woman on the planet, playmates, whatever you want, and he has them, he's about to kill himself. Starts the book off. It starts so graphic and, and horror. He's about to kill himself. And the reason he's about to kill himself is because he finally fell in love with a woman, but he's built all the tools to attract women, but none of the tools to keep a woman, and he's about to lose her. And so he's about to kill himself, and they have to rush him to the to the psychiatrist to, to, so he doesn't end his life. And and it was so powerful because it's like it was it, this book was told as a cautionary tale in the sense to what ends up with with people, even the men in that lifestyle. And so my biggest thing is I just I wish the women could also hear these stories because because it seems like there's a a fantasy around how men are experiencing this hyper-promiscuity. Hyper so in your opinion, what do you think is the narrative being communicated to women about the, the sexual promiscuity and how men are able to handle just this laissez-faire, no-connection hookup culture? Yeah. I mean, it's it's... I think there is a very kind of crude version of feminism, which I'm really not into, which basically sees the task as allowing women to behave as badly as men have always behaved. Yeah. 
Like there's this whole genre of um of article that you'll read and often in places like the New York Times, I swear there's a new one every week, by a woman who says that she left her her husband and children because she wasn't feeling fulfilled. Yeah. Um and uh and often like completely tears up her children's lives just because she wasn't feeling it. Like there's no abuse. There's no, there's nothing like seriously wrong. It's just that kind of, you know, and, and, and some people who will defend these women will say, well, haven't men always done this? You know, haven't, you know, didn't Don Draper, you know, and his ilk, like constantly cheat on his, hit their wives and, 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 and treat women terribly, you know, why should women? And I say, yeah, and that was really bad. And frankly, like, yes, I mean, Don, it is true that men often behave really badly and that um you know there's this kind of tacit tolerance of that but actually you know that it was not difficult either to find people in say the 1950s 1960s who would condemn don Don draper you know don draper's pastor is not gonna like condone what he's doing you know the idea that that was just kind of completely unquestioned um masculine ideal um in that era i think is not true and I think therefore as well to to sort of just like almost accept that men are going to behave terribly and so why not like let the girls join them at it. I just think it's terrible politics and it's going to make the world, the world so much worse. Um, yeah, in, in relation to things like, yeah, abandoning abandoning one's children and and also in, in wanting to sleep around and be the pickup artist. And, and yeah, I think that a lot of... Um, I don't think a lot of women pay enough who, who 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 sort of subscribe to this model pay enough attention to quite how miserable it makes these men. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean Hugh Hefner is um kind of complex example because I'm not sure if he ever felt especially regretful. He did end up being fairly pathetic and he definitely didn't spend his whole life as this sort of glamorous figure by he there, there is a shelf life. You know, there isn't the shelf life for men might be a little bit older than for women but it's still there like if, if you're you can't really be living this lifestyle when you're in your 70s or 80s and also if you've done that there's a pretty good chance that you're not going to have a wife and family around you who are going to actually make your life sort of comfortable and meaningful when you're in old age if, if you, you like you will eventually pay a price almost always for having foregone all of that um and also there is just a kind of almost always a kind of uh, spiritual emptiness that most people end up contending with you know not always that there are there are outliers but i sort of think if you're um if, if you're in your 20s say and you're sort of faced with different options available to you you know do i do i try and get married and, and stay married or do i kind of play the field for as long as possible i think look it might be that playing the field works out for you and you're one of these outliers for whom it's great but like you're probably normal <laughs> like most likely outcome is that actually it'll be um it'll be as risky and unfulfilling as it is for most people. It's actually, mm. I think it's Jordan Peterson, he's, he's quoting Jordan Peterson again, because <laughs> he's both so familiar with his work, who says, um, unless you have an extraordinarily good reason not to, you should basically behave as everyone else behaves. Yeah. When you're, when, yeah. when you're choosing your sort of life template. And I think that's right. The template exists for a reason. You know, the, 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 I can't remember who, the exact term for it, but the sort of like three-factor recipe for success where you graduate from high school, you get married before you have children, and oh, I can't remember the Full-time third. Full-time job, 
full time no job. No kids before twenty. No kids before you get married and you get married um, after twenty one and um. And I think finish high school. Yeah, and finish and high school. That's all it yeah, is. You don't terrible. even need a degree. Yeah, like if yeah, you do yeah, those three yeah. things. Yeah. And you don't get addicted to anything. You're probably all right. You know, yeah. and that's that's that. It, it's as basic as that. Sometimes, just these templates. The reason they exist is because actually, for most people, that's how it works out. And maybe there are a few people who, like, can subvert it all and have a ball. But I think actually, this this, this weird idea that comes out of the 1960s, there's something good about subversion. Full stop. That there's that we should be disrupting and we should be. You know, I think. <sighs> It's much easier to break things than it is to make things. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's so good. Number one rule in um, Jordan Peterson again. <laughs> in uh, Jordan Peterson's Beyond Order is do not carelessly denigrate social institutions or creative achievements. And it's basically based upon the idea of do not carelessly tear down social institutions that's has created the fa- framework and, f- and fabric for society. You made you you made a point where you talked about these outliers, and I think it's so important to talk about these things because some of these outliers are sociopaths. You know, like the person who's able to do evil consistently, or do wrong consistently, or do something that's hurtful to them consistently and not feel anything. You know, it's like we're creating a generation of sociopaths. We're creating a generation of people who are mostly disconnected from their bodies and their souls and their minds. And so to me, I, I, I think what, what happens, like you said, is these individuals shape the behavior of the masses. And that's the worst part, right? You know, I think that's one of the, 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 the challenges of the, the, the squeaky wheel getting the most oil. This American phrase, you might not be familiar with it, but basically this idea of the person, the, 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 the most agitated, frustrated person is usually the person that's going to get the most attention because they're going to be the loudest. Yeah. Um, and so you saw you saw a whole generation of these individuals, especially you know Alfred Kinsey and his studies, right? You know the the, the stuff he was putting out, describing the sexual ethics of Americans in the in in the fifties is like 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 we all know like wh- where were you getting your sample size from? You know down you know Sixth Street Alley. Like what what's going on? Um, and so, no, I, I love what you talked about because there's so many people who who are allowing these individuals who are living lifestyle they're not sustainable create uh, a normal path for society like we all can fit into this this model. And so, in your personal opinion, in regards to what do you think caused the most damage? I'm going to give you five things that you think caused the most damage in regards to the, 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 the sexual health of our society? I'm curious what you think it is. Would you say it was A, let's go to feminine mystique. Let's go B, birth control. Let's go C, Alfred Kinsey and Kinsey's report. D, no-fault divorce. Or would you say it would be E, the rock and roll culture that emerged in media that projected and perpetuated these ideals i think the one of the 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 thing on the list there that i don't think has any redeeming features is no fault divorce because the other stuff you can sort you know like there are pros and cons there were there were benefits to it you know including birth control um 
I think that my, my whole book is kind of based around all the bad effects that birth control had down the line, but it, it's had some good effects too. I don't think no-fault divorce has any good effects because I mm. think that the only thing that's good about divorce, the only, the only reason one might want to make divorce easier is for people who are in um, abusive relationships, right? And I completely accept that it used to be really hard to get out of an abusive marriage, if you were, particularly if you're a woman and people... Um, you know, people had awful experiences and that was really, that was really terrible, particularly in the era when um, women were really economically dependent on men. This is something that people don't always think about when, you know, one of the things I kind of rail against is, is the idea of progress and the idea of history having this clear shape, particularly in relation to women's history, where like things just get better and better all the time and they're just going to keep getting better. It's like, no, things, history is secular, um, Mm -hmm. cyclical, really. And particularly when you talk about something like women's history, you you, you cannot see it on that like straightforward line. So for instance, um, the time that a lot of feminist thinking comes out of the 19th century is a time when there's just been an enormous economic shift in the form of the industrial revolution. And in pre-industrial society, women actually have a lot more economic power in the sense that in like a in a in a uh, artisan household or in a farming household, the, the the traditional role of women you mentioned this earlier is to be doing economic work in the form of processing raw materials. So men are going out and doing the really hard physical work, and then women are doing the the, the work at home, which is compatible also with minding small children. And like there's a, it's like a yin and yang. You know, those two roles are completely complementary, and it means that women actually may not have you know, some of the legal powers that men do, but women do have a sort of economic importance, which gives them another kind of power within the household and within the community. And it's actually post-industrial revolution. My friend Mary Harrington has just published a book that's partly about this, and it's fantastic, called Feminism Against Progress. Um, it's partly post-industrial revolution, where which removes work from the home and takes it to the factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have the new model becomes that you leave the home to go to work. And so the men are leaving the home to go to work. Poor women are having to leave the, the, the home to go to work because they have to. And it's awful because like, what do you do with your children? If you've got little children and you have to go spend a 12 hour shift in a factory or down a mine or something, what do you do with them? Like it's a complete disaster for these women, which means rich women are then staying at home or middle-class women are staying at home, which is obviously better than going to work in a factory, but is actually pretty sort of disempowering. And you end up with women becoming completely economically dependent on men in a way that's quite disempowering to them. So, so you know, this is the context where all the, the sort of push for divorce comes out of. And you can, completely, can, you can completely see why a woman who is completely economically dependent on a man has basically no legal personhood and is being beaten up by him. Of course she wants to get divorced, right? So I, 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 in those instances, like, I completely get it. The problem is that what we did with reforming divorce laws in the 1960s, which happened in the UK and the US at about the same time, is that you you open the floodgates. You know, what, what reformers wanted was just to help those women and those, you know, and men too, you know, that help people who were in really dire straits. But what ended up happening is that it became normal to get divorced. And now we've got a situation where you have like a third of marriages ending in divorce, people not even getting married in the first place, <laughs> meaning that, um, that the whole institution just kind of collapses. And I think, I think to push for no-fault divorce on top of like... We we did this in the UK just um, last year, introduced no fault divorce for the first time, which I just think was, I just think 
a terrible political decision because as if you needed to degrade the institution of marriage any further, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, one of the things that we know helpfully from looking at American um, divorce laws, because it's obviously varied by state, is that states that bring in no-fault divorce, there are, there are, you can see other effects down the line when you look at the data. So for instance, when states bring in no-fault divorce, spouses become less willing to fund a spouse through further education and less willing to have a child and basically less willing to do all these things which require short-term sacrifice for the sake of the relationship because all of a sudden you know it's not just the people who are getting divorced for whom this affects it affects everyone because the whole institution kind of gets like the rug swept from under it so I I yeah, I think no fault divorce is mad. It, like, if the marriage has failed, it's because someone's at fault. <laughs> and like, I get yeah, yeah. that that it takes like it means the legal process potentially is more difficult. But like, that's not a very high price to pay for what is, I think, an institution that is that can be bedrock of society and which we're not doing nearly enough work to protect. I love it. I love it. We'll we'll, we'll definitely dive deeper to the marriage conversations this is so good i feel like we're yeah we, we haven't even touched the book yet everybody <laughs> people can I'm work like, out man. what it's about right? <laughs> i know i know we're just getting so let's let's let's, let's give them a little bit of the book because they got to read it we're not going to give them too much of the book so 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 to me um my my question to you is can you describe to the people the typical female experience that you research that lead that that leads them to the journey of let's call it sexual discovery to then sexual misery to then wanting something more what was the typical story you were hearing from women um as you were doing research for this book so one of the interesting um paradoxes in looking at the way that sexual culture has changed in the last few decades is that it's well known that people are having less sex. Yes. And they, and particularly men are losing their virginities later and um, everyone is having less sex than they used to. But also at the same time, we have this kind of hypersexual culture, amazing degree of sort of sexual availability, at least in, in terms of things like porn and like um, very sexualized TV and music and all this stuff. Um, and there's basically no stigma whatsoever attached to casual sex in the mainstream. So that's a weird paradox, right? I think actually it makes sense. I think it's the same phenomenon. I think what's going on, for instance, with, um, with women is that women are um, less likely to form like lasting relationships, particularly young. It's amazing, you know, when you look at things like average age of marriage um, over the last century or so, even in the 1980s, average age of marriage was in the early 20s. Mm -hmm. Like, can you believe that? That's so recent. Know, <laughs> Whereas now in the UK, it's over 30. It might be a little bit younger in the US, but it's still a lot older than it was even for our parents. Um, and um, so people are not getting married. And when they are having sex, sexual relationships, they're much more likely to be casual ones or friends with benefits or, you know, this this it's this funny thing simultaneously where where you know young women are generally having a lot more partners but they're actually having a lot less sex because they're maybe having like a few one night stands a year rather than having a steady boyfriend with whom they're having sex once a week and so you can see how the numbers work out you know um 
And it's amazing to me how quickly this has happened in the age of the apps. And if I talk to women, like women who come to my talks or whatever, or who contact me, um, who are a bit younger, so I'm 31 now, and women who are maybe in their early 20s, um, you know, gorgeous, attractive women who'll say, I've never had a relationship in their mid-20s or something, because not because they don't want one, but because they have absolutely no difficulty attracting like sexual, casual sexual partners and they're inundated, they go on Tinder or something, they're inundated with um, with matches. But these aren't men who actually want to have lasting relationships with them. And what they often end up doing is getting into kind of situationships with men who also have a bunch of other women on the go at the same time that they don't necessarily know about and they get really jaded and end up just kind of having this like litany of bad experiences that, that basically put them off men. And often, this this really does explain a lot of the sort of casual misandry that you'll see on social media and stuff. These are women who've had like a decade of just being cheated on and ghosted and, you know, just get so kind of bitter about it. Unless they get lucky and sort of, you know, find the right guy early on. You know, that does That does happen. Um, you know, I've, I've been, I've been with my husband now for almost 10 years, you know, it's not like this unheard of for people to have lasting relationships. It's more that the frequency has changed a lot and what's normal has changed. Um, so like women who, who, who've had these experiences, you know, never having a proper relationship, always being kind of, um, channeled into this like casual, casual arrangement. He'll say to me, I didn't know before I read your book that I was allowed to object to that. Really? I just thought it was normal. I thought, you know, and 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 we'll say I read your book and it's completely changed my life because I didn't know that that was, you know, something I could legitimately feel upset about. Basically, I had this so, gorgeous email from you. Sorry, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Uh, you you you're really about to get into a really amazing <laughs> point. I didn't want to miss out on it. What do you mean by they didn't know? They look at the likes of Sex and the City or whatever kind of. I mean. The, the, the more the modern iterations of sex and the city are of anything like much more explicit and much more extreme. Like um what's that show that's on Netflix? Euphoria. Yeah. Is it, yeah. <laughs> so they look at stuff like that and what they read in magazines and all that. And they think, um uh I'm supposed to like this. Mm. You know? I'm supposed to enjoy playing the field. Like this is this is a type of freedom that was denied to my grandmother. Um I should be enjoying this. And it's really hard to acknowledge that actually they're not. And um, yeah, I got the, I, the, the phrase that was used in an email I got from um, the mother actually of a woman who who she read the, she read my book and her daughter read my book as well. And um, she, I won't go into the details of the sort of scenario, but basically her daughter sort of came to the realization that actually that it not only is this not okay, but also that her feelings of distress are okay. It's something that I think maybe a lot of men don't realize about women, particularly young women. Like young women are really, really socially sensitive. It's one of the things it's the evolutionary biologists explain this probably because it's very, it's, you know, it's a very important age in terms of you're, you're likely to be having your first children in the ancestral environment you're at the most kind of sexually desirable, which means you're at risk in terms of male predation. And it's an, and it's a point where women really need to be building coalitions with other women and really worrying about their kind of like building that community to be really strong. So it makes sense that women would be very, very sort of um, 
almost obsessed with their social role and with like building relationships with the people around them and having prestige and all of this stuff. Um, in a way, you know, men do that too, but in slightly subtly different ways. And um, it means that often women are very, they're very sensitive to fashion. They're very interested in, um, you know, every type of fashion, like what's cool right now is a really interesting phenomenon in linguistics that it's often young women who are the most sort of, um, uh, they're the most innovative when it comes to new types of slang because young women are really interested in what's fashionable and that includes language. So they're, they're like early adopters of slang and they'll spread slang widely and stuff like that. So basically young women are so concerned with this, with their social position that they, it's incredibly easy to basically make them put their own needs second mm. and to, and, and like it, it I watched the um, the um, documentaries on the BBC last week, and I, I'm sure it must have been in America about um, uh, Cosby. It's called "We Need to Talk About Cos um, Cosby, Bill Cosby," and they interviewed a load of his victims. It was an interesting series, and you know, like interesting insights into American history and so on. But the thing that I, really struck me talking to the victims is how incredibly easy it was actually to persuade them to take the drugs he offered to not say anything afterwards, to not make a fuss, to not talk to the media. Like, I think this is something men don't always realise. Well, except, I mean, I think Bill Cosby did realise this and he manipulated it. But a lot of men don't realise that women care so much about being nice and they care so much about being liked and they will put up with so much nonsense <laughs> for like to that end. And so women who've basically been living their lives like this, where they're just... They're doing what's normal. They're doing what makes them sort of seem cool to their friends. And then they read my book and they're like, oh, my God, I have felt so miserable this whole time. And I felt like I couldn't say it. And the expression that um, the mother of this young woman used in an email to me, which I thought was so lovely, which was talking about how young uh, uh, her daughter had um, had rejected the advances of a guy who basically just wanted to sleep with her and 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 didn't want anything else from her. And she said, you know, previously before she wrote my book, she would have said yes, she would have gone along with it, basically to be nice. But she didn't. And she said she felt she was armed with permission to actually put her own needs first for the first time. And I just thought armed with permission was just such a beautiful phrase. And that's like, if there's any difference I can make, I'm hoping it's that one. <laughs> just to say, actually, it sounds so tiny, but you're allowed, you're allowed to do this. You're allowed to say no. You're allowed to, to mm. put your own feelings of discomfort and distress first. No, this is so powerful. You were, you were, you were being possessed by the spirit of wisdom. And this is, this is really good stuff. Um, you mentioned something previously, and I had to write it down. And you were saying that a lot of the women, they were communicating to you. You know, they didn't know that they could, that they could say no. And, 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 and then you brought a point about the misandrous woman online who, who for 10 years or were going through this pain of man after man after heartbreak. And, and so my question to you is, do you think they're going through these cycles because they're not asking? Sorry. Do you think that they're in these cycles? I call it the cul-de-sac of misery, right? You're driving around in a circle over and over again. You can't get out. Do you think they're going through these cycles because they themselves are choosing to stay in the cycle because they think it's supposed to be 
liberating or you think they're going through these cycles because they deep down really want to get out but there's no men who don't want this casual hookup culture what what do you think in in your own personal opinion so having just been super sympathetic to young women i do also think that sometimes what goes on is women do kind of get stuck in this um this kind of romantic narrative right where you you're you're waiting for mr absolute absolutely perfect and you're drawn to the kind of really handsome glamorous guys who are high in dark triad traits you know psychopathy machiavellianism um what's the first one third one narcissism um because often those guys are really charming and and these are very likely to be the ones who are having multiple women on the go and are going to ghost you and stuff you know i think that sometimes women need to be much wiser about the men that they are attracted to and there's this it's something you see so often in romantic fiction intended for women so it's basically porn for women right is is um the bad boy who changes for you 50 shades of gray yeah like he's horrible to every he's horrible to all the women and he's distant and whatever but you are the special one and you are the one who's gonna like turn him around and i think so many women find that really seductive as a narrative and it is such a destructive narrative because it's basically never happens and actually i mean so i got married when i was quite young i got engaged when i was 24 and i had people tell me at the time including one good friend tell me that i am um, it was, was way too young and i needed to like do so much more experimentation and whatever before i before i settled down because um again that you know it's the sex and city narrative that you should be spending your 20s discovering yourself and so on and then maybe you get married in your 30s yeah yeah um and i didn't listen to them and i'm really glad that i didn't listen to them (laughs) because i actually think now that getting married um allows you to start your life it's not finding mr right is not like the cherry on life's cake that you achieve you know it's 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 it should be the having mr like Mr. Good Enough, Mr. Reliable, Mr. Stable, not Mr. Romantic Hero, you know, <laughs> not impugning my husband, you know, he's amazing, but just being like, if I think a much more realistic way, basis for having a happy marriage is to find each other when you're both still quite young and so you haven't like got completely set in your ways and then just start your life together. Rather than this sort of like, yeah, this Fifty Shades fantasy of like finding Mr. Perfect in this incredibly dramatic and drawn out process of discovery. Because it makes for great films and TV, but it doesn't make for actually good lives. No, this is so super powerful. So in Bowling Alone, Dr. Putman talks about how the television really shaped society. And uh, you can see how it was exacerbated nowadays with social media. But like you said, a lot of these films and a lot of these stories create the narratives that we believe because narrative is important, right? Um, and so the narrative uh, is, is something that we, we constantly see. And, and, and what I believe is these, mer- these narratives are like what God, Dr. Godsad talks about, these mind viruses, right? That, that infect our mind and it grows into these these ideas that are that 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 really ruin our lives because 
to your point, what what I what I see, and this is all my this is my personal experience. I I see that like a, in in regards to this hypersexual culture who's participating it's a it's a minority of men and a lot of women who are participating in this in this culture from my personal experience um and there's a whole community of men who are left out and discontent some would argue if they could they would participate in it as well but there's but at least they want that they since they can't participate in the in the in the, the the dark game they want something more meaningful because that's kind of all what they can really engage in. And so a lot of what I've seen is a lot of women, when they're in that 20 year old period of time, they're, they're engaging with the same kind of guys over and over and over and over again. Like you said, because the narrative being taught to them is, is the narrative of, you know, find old buddy from twilight, right? Find whatever his name is, Taylor Tristan. I don't know these guys' names, right? Find the werewolf, find the vampire, find the billionaire, find these guys and tame them, right? These dangerous people and tame them. And one day he'll love you and he'll give up his 75 different concubines and you'll be his one and only, right? The the, the fictional narratives. Mm -hmm. And so I've seen that and, and, and I see a lot of women who are chasing those kind of kinds of men and so the reason I asked you that question, because I was curious, is not to remove accountability from the culture, but there's also like a lot of bad narratives that the women have accepted. And this is why I loved your book, because to, and, and I'm doing a comedic, comedic callback, but to sex and the single girls argument, she was like, I was the only one talking about these things. So they came to me, Right. But because of what you're doing, you're talking about these issues, and now the at least the women have a counter narrative, which is the correct narrative of really what life is all about. And so, to me, I, I, I one of my biggest questions was, okay, like, what stories are women receiving today that are going to give them healthy, meaningful lives. I've been curious about this for years. I've, I've been interviewing lots of people. That's why I was so excited to talk to you. Cause I was like, what I'm looking at, there's not many stories. There's not many, as you talk about in your podcast, not a lot of matriarchs who are coming into society and, and, and teaching um, women, these important values and meaningfulness. And, and so do you, do you believe that, because, you know, you have the Sarah Jessica Parker type characters who are in their late 30s and 40s still in, the, in this dangerous sexual marketplace. They're not even teaching the women because they don't want the women to, you know, to have the information because they're competition. Why do you think so many women are not teaching these things to the younger generation? Well, I mean, I think I, I called my last... Um my last chapter, Listen to Your Mother, because I think actually a lot of older women probably would say roughly this to their to their daughters and granddaughters if, if their daughters and granddaughters wanted to listen. But um, one of the features of progressivism is like if, if your whole narrative of history is that people are getting sort of wising up every day, you sort of by definition mm. have to reject people who are older because they're out of touch you know so it's really hard to to persuade I think also there's a degree to which older women are um in a culture that really really valorizes uh youth 
and sexual availability and the mate. So I call my podcast Maiden Mother Matriarch. And, and my assertion is that we, a lot of women get kind of stuck in maiden mode because we don't have the status attached to the mother and to the matriarch. And so women don't want to progress to those roles because it means getting old and being and being ignored and whatever, because the only thing that matters is being sexually available. And obviously the older you get, the less access you have to that kind of status. But you have access to other kinds of status, you know. There's a status attached to being a mother, actually, and having this enormously powerful influence over your children. There's a status attached to being embedded in your communities, you know, all these kind of traditional roles for women, which are actually very powerful, but which I think we kind of disregard and we only care about the sexual availability one. Um, I think those women are out, you know, they're, they're out there and actually they would be, nothing I say in this book is, is, is original, right? Like everything in there, I'm basically just saying stuff that would be considered common sense, even a few decades ago. I guess it's just unusual for me to have written it when I was as young as I, when I was as young as I was, um, and which hopefully means, you know, that, 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 um, women who are a little bit younger than me are more willing to listen to it, which does seem to be the case. I probably wouldn't have got anywhere near as much positive attention from those girls if I was 20 years older still, um, which is kind of sad, but it's also just sort of the reality of where we are right now in the culture. No, I, I agree. And that was a part about, um, it's funny because you know <laughs> we'll probably talk about this off camera. I just I've, I've I've been searching for this for so long, and I and I've always said you need for women to listen to somebody. You need somebody who's young enough to relate to them, but also old enough to have what they desire <laughs> and to be established in their wisdom, and also articulate enough to can be able to express these ideas. And and then, unfortunately, you have to be attractive enough for them to be able to like, OK, I'm going to sit down and see her face, you know, like, so it's like there's like this. Yeah. Then, then you appear, you know, who's able to who was able to, to, to hit a lot of these these markers. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with nowadays is is um, this idea of like, what are you aiming towards? Like, what is the vision for the future? What are we striving? What are we striving to? And so my my question to you is. For a younger woman who's just hearing your content for the first time, just hearing your message for the first time, about to pick up your book because of this podcast, what is the future? Because society promises them sleep around, have fun, hook up, hang out. You know, eventually one day after you've you know, lived your life of jubilee, you'll settle down and, and have a family and then you live happily ever after. What are you selling? Like, what is the message? What is the vision? What is the aim for women that you believe is more meaningful than the narrative being communicated in today's society? It's the tried and tested one, I guess. <laughs> it's the it's the one that has, you know, I'm not. We talked already about the 1950s, you know, the 1950s is like capitalized Um I'm genuinely not saying that we go back to the 1950s because as we talked about, the 1950s were quite weird. What I'm, what I am saying though, is I think that there are certain ways in which our contemporary society is very weird and is completely different from basically any society that's come before. And a big part of that is to do with technology, but it's also to do with politics. And um, I, what we've discovered over the last 60 years is that completely radically transforming society and tearing down all the social guardrails 
causes a lot of pain. And this is obvious to look around. You know, we've, we've run this experiment and it's caused people a lot of pain. And the task I think that we've got is not even cons- being conservative because like, what is there to conserve? <laughs> you know, you can barely conserve, you know, marriage, for instance, when it's basically, it's basically being destroyed. I think what the task is, is actually reconstruction. And when we're trying to work out how to reconstruct some of these social institutions, you can't just sort of design it on the back of an envelope and say, like, this is what I think people are like and this is how I think people should behave because people are extraordinarily complicated. I think that you you have to look at other cultures and other times and places and say, what are the common themes here? You know, every society, for instance, has something like marriage, has some kind of marriage institution. And one of the things I lay out in the book is that I think monogamous marriage institutions are, like, you know, data-wise, much better for societies. But every society has some sort of marriage institution, whether it be monogamous or um, polygamous. Every society has families, has, you know, a, a, a role for the extended family. Every society has some kind of faith, some kind of shared story. You know, these are things that we, we have hubristically thought that we can do without. And I think actually we've learned that we can't. And it's not about sort of recreating any particular decade or any like particular nostalgic ideal. It's about saying, okay, if we actually understand what people are like and we, and we, and we, we look at the whole sweep of human history and instead of thinking that everyone who lived before about 1995 was just bad and stupid <laughs> and thinking actually they're probably basically the same as us, you know, human, our, our minds basically haven't really changed since the stone age. So we're dealing with people who were just the same as us, but had completely different circumstances and incentives and whatever. What did they do about it? And I think it's about looking at these kind of these common themes, these threads and saying, okay, that seems to be what works. That seems to be the best way of sort of maximizing the good for everyone. Um, yeah, that's the challenge. It's quite a hard challenge. <laughs> and it's in the face of still having these kind of extraordinarily, extraordinary onslaughts from, um, you know, everything from, uh, the internet to globalization to whatever, which, which all sort of, um, seem to conspire against that reconstruction effort. But people can, people can do it though. People can do it at individual level. You know, I do believe in human agency. I think that our agency is very much limited by our circumstances and people respond to, uh, incentives and peer pressure and all this stuff of course they do but in the end you do you, you know you can make choices that are different and people are doing that every day and I've had so many men and women tell me that just having having read my incredibly obvious unoriginal work that they that, they, that they've like resolved to do that which proves that it's possible no this is super powerful um there's a concept, and I, I promised myself I wouldn't share because it it's kind of long. But uh, <laughs> there's a concept of of the story of the hero, um, and it, and it's uh, you know Dr. Peterson. Take a shot whenever we say his name. <laughs> um, he uh, he he mentioned this idea, and it's you know societies is in peace, harmony, then all of a sudden chaos arises, and then chaos removes the order, right? And then chaos is then replaced by, you know, this oppressive tyranny. And then it, then it just rucks, wrecks havoc in the land. 
And then all of a sudden, there's a hero who looks and says, this is not okay. The hero galvanizes people to go against the t- tyrannical order. Then the hero defeats the, the, the battles the tyrannical order, defeats the tyrannical order. But he doesn't go back to where it used to be. He goes forward. You know, like in every great movie, you know, like in The Lion King, Simba doesn't run things the way Mufasa ran it. He moves forward, but taking the wisdom of the past to create a better future for us all. And the word you use called reconstruction is powerful. Because you see that, like you said, history is very cyclical. It's like a cycle. History's like a cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not this linear line progressing towards utopia, right? And so this so I believe I, the same way sex and the single girl was a catalyst, and the same way the feminine mystique was a catalyst that that led women in the wrong direction. I truly believe your book is a catalyst. That's going to lead women in society back in the right direction, because the same way it took one person to to break down a system, it can just takes one person to rebuild it again, um, to start rebuilding it. And it took one person to start to tear down. And so I'm really I've been taking tons of notes on sticky notes because <laughs> there's just so much wisdom that you were sharing. And I'm and I'm just I'm just so impressed. I'm so grateful. You know, you're 31 years old. I just I'm 32, and 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 everything that you stand for, just just embodies what we need in today's society, and and I'm I'm eternally grateful for your work, um, and and yeah, no, thank you, thank you so much. If there's anything else we didn't touch upon that you would like to share in closing, um, what would that be? I don't think of anything except to say that um, it'd be really great if people could check out my podcast because I went on like I had never thought of founding a podcast before it, like if you'd asked me a few years ago I would be like that's a crazy idea but then I, I just had been on I've been I've done like a hundred interviews since this book was published <laughs> and and you know everyone like I I, I my, the challenge I set myself and I've hit it like half a dozen times in our conversation now is to say something new that I've not said in another interview. Um, and, uh, yeah, I realize actually this, you know, it's one thing to write books, but a lot of people don't, don't want to read books for whatever reason, you know, fine. Actually having these conversations often reaches people, a lot more people. Um, and so I'm, um, that's what I'm trying to do on my podcast called Men, Mother, Matriarch. And I'm having conversations with, with evolutionary biologists, with philosophers, with, you know, uh, campaigners talking about sexual politics in, you know, in a reconstructionist way. <laughs> do, you, do you use that phrase? It is a good phrase. <laughs> no, I love it. I love it. I love it. Uh, thank you so much, Luis. Guys, um, one of the biggest things here is be sure to um, subscribe to Luis's podcast as well as purchase her book. It's such, it's, it needs it be purchased. And after you purchase the book, do her a favor, go on Amazon, leave a review. Those are very, very important. Leave all positive (laughs) reviews um, because that helps the book, you know, do well in the Amazon algorithm. If you truly believe in her message, not only buy one copy of her book, buy two, 
give it to someone, give it to a young woman who you believe needs to hear this message. These are very important matters that are quintessential in today's time. So please do not neglect um, the work that you can do to spread her amazing message. So Luis, thank you so much. Um, where can people find you at? Uh, so I'm on Twitter uh, at Louise underscore M underscore Perry. And the podcast is Made Mother Matriarch and it's on YouTube and also on all all good all good pop podcast places. Uh the book, you're probably gonna have to buy the book on Amazon. Because I tell you it was it was published with this really small academic publishing house who have um never pub <laughs> like it's 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 been their best selling book by quite some distance. And so trying to get it into bookshops has proved to be logistically really difficult. But Amazon um bless them have always basically managed to have stock and it's also an audio audible audible as well um yeah awesome awesome so guys be sure to show her some love and support her guys thank you so much my name is hafiz and i'm joined by louise perry thank you guys so much and you guys have a great day